The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Catholic Home on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Teresa, and on this episode, I'm joined by Camille. Welcome, Camille. Thanks, Teresa. So glad to be here. And I'm so glad you could make it. Today's show is about traditional customs which bring deeper meaning and appreciation to the liturgical seasons of Advent and Christmas into our Catholic homes. When speaking with a friend who was a convert from the Novus Ordo, he said that what he, and he believes probably many others like him, are really wanting to learn about us some basic customs that can be incorporated into home and family life, which many of us cradle Catholics simply take for granted. So today our guest Camille will present some great ideas based on various Catholic customs and traditions to bring the liturgical year alive in your home during Advent and Christmas. Camille, as a first-time guest on Restoration Radio, I'm sure our listeners will be interested in knowing something about you before we launch into the show, so would you please oblige? Sure, Teresa. Well, I'm a cradle set of Catholic in a family of seven children who attend one of the set of missions in Australia. I was fully homeschooled for primary and high school, and I'm now currently studying a Bachelor of Naturopathy at university. I'm a member of the Holy Face Confraternity, and I'm also an active member of the pro-life community in Perth. Wow, there are some very worthwhile causes you were involved with, and your course of study surely must be very interesting and useful too. Anyway, thanks for that brief rundown. Now we'll get stuck into today's topic. Now, as many of you know, the driving forces of our current society, in accordance with, for example, such things as the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, they work to destroy all Catholic customs and morality to then substitute their Erzat's culture and morality in its place. Now, it started with them allowing and even encouraging the keeping of the dates of the major Christian feasts, such as Easter and Christmas, yet the meaning of these feasts has been gradually altered, you know, by such vehicles as movies, popular songs, even advertising campaigns and similar things. So although that modern world has kept the external forms, over time it has actually totally lost and disconnected itself from the true meaning. Now, this stage, most people in our society happily celebrate such feast days without a care or any concern of what they really represent, nor why they are going through these motions. They just celebrate them unquestioningly because that's what people do. So already we've seen some sort of counterfeit substitute come about as so-called celebrations of these feast days, in general society that is, have totally ceased to serve their intended purpose and are therefore not truly being celebrated properly at all. So here in Australia, for example, it is quite common for shops and restaurants and certain organisations to even hold what they call Christmas in July. And most people don't even seem to question this. And, of course, there are many totally secular substitutes for religious customs as well, which seem to increase in number each year. Now, we, like those of us Catholics, can see straight away how absurd such things are and would instinctively want nothing to do with them. Yet... Unless we have a wealth of Catholic customs enriching our children's lives and they know what they represent and why we practice them, they will possibly fall prey to these counterfeit customs, which are all part of this naturalistic system. And as we know, this is all around them as soon as they step out of the home and as they're growing up. So, in accordance with the church's calendar, we'll start with Advent, then move on to the Christmas season, Now, Camille, let's launch into this episode with some Advent customs. First off, before we recommend any customs in the home, I just wanted to stress that the absolute best way to spend all our liturgical seasons is to assist daily at Holy Mass. This is the true Tridentine Mass offered by a true Catholic priest and not offered in union with heretics. However, since most of us haven't this option anymore, the next best thing is to daily pray the liturgical prayers using, for example, a daily missal, or Dom Geringer's The Liturgical Year, or some layfolk even use The Divine Office. 
Whatever you choose, the main thing is to pray and do readings in accord with the mind of the church for each season. After you've either assisted at Mass or at least prayed according to the season, if time permits, you should then add to this foundation one or more of the various enrichment customs. We plan to discuss quite a few of these customs, but there are many more that we won't have time to discuss and no doubt many that we've never heard of. For starters, I'd just like to recommend a fantastic little book that I have called Religious Customs in the Family by Father Francis Weiser. It's a great book. It has lots of fantastic information and ideas for celebrating the different feasts throughout the year. Another great book is The Feast Day Cookbook by Catherine Burton and Helmut Ripperger. It has many different church feasts as well as saints days and it not only gives a short synopsis of each feast or saint, it then gives traditional recipes for each of those feasts. So for instance, on the Feast of the Assumption, the traditional recipe is scallopine al masala or veal masala. I have to admit, seeing as they are the traditional recipes, you have to be pretty daring to try some of them, such as the jellied pig's head for St. Joseph's Day. Oh my gosh! (laughs) But it's great to read about all the different traditions behind all the recipes. All right, moving straight into Advent. As an introduction, I'll paraphrase from Dom Garanger's liturgical year as follows. Advent is that period of the year during which the church requires the faithful to prepare for the celebration of the Feast of Christmas. We must look upon Advent in two different lights. First, as a time of preparation for the birth of our Saviour by works of penance, and secondly, as a series of ecclesiastical offices drawn up for the same purpose. It is our duty to join with the saints of the old law in asking for the Messiah, and thus pay the debt which the whole human race owes to the divine mercy. During this season of Advent, our Lord knocks at the door of all men's hearts. He comes to ask them if they have room for him, for he wishes to be born in their house. The house indeed is his, for he built it and preserves it, yet he complains that his own refuse to receive him. Now to ensure that we fulfil this duty and that we are not among them who refuse to receive him, we should spend our Advent accordingly. To this end, we will begin with one of the more well-known customs, being the Advent calendar. Well, most of us have heard of these, given secularised versions are all over the shops, complete with silly pictures that have absolutely nothing to do with Advent or Christmas, and often have chocolate or candy treats for each day of Advent, which is inappropriate to say the least, given Advent is a penitential season, whereas we should be encouraging children to give up candy or treats rather than giving them one every day leading up to Christmas. So if we want to do an Advent countdown to Christmas which most children and the young at heart, like myself, like to do, we should either buy or make Advent calendars with religious significance, including such things as relevant scripture quotes, prayers and holy images for each day pertaining to the coming of the Messiah and forego the sweet treat. Early into the Advent calendar, we find the feast of a saint who has in recent times become associated with Christmas because he is now often known as Santa Claus. But many may not know of the origin of this jolly man who brings gifts to children at Christmas and that he is named after St. Nicholas. It is a tradition for children to leave out their shoes on the night before his feast, being December 6th, and he will leave them a note and gold coins, chocolate ones of course, in their shoes for them to find in the morning. This tradition is based on events that occurred in St. Nicholas's life, such as the story of the poor father with three daughters Because they were so poor, he was unable to provide a dowry for his daughters and feared that they would never marry. To prevent the father from making a rash decision and forcing the girls into sin for money, St. Nicholas decided to intervene. But rather than shame the father by offering money and make him accept charity, St. Nicholas went in the night and threw three bags of gold coins through the window of their house. He's also one of the main patron saints of children, so he really comes into his own at this time of year with children. Yeah, my children particularly like this gold coins tradition because although they also receive the customary letter from St. Nicholas exhorting them to doing more penance and trying to be on the best behaviour, they actually get chocolate during Advent. And being a season when they have given up sweets, this is always considered something welcome. However, I usually make them save the chocolate coins for the following Sunday. But this year, the Feast of St. Nicholas actually falls on a Sunday, which is a bonus for them, and there's no waiting. Oh, that's right, it does. Another nice tradition is the Advent wreath. The Advent wreath was first used as a Catholic devotional in the Middle Ages. Its design initially comes from pre-Christian Germanic and Scandinavian cultures who used candles and greenery as symbols of light and life during winter. 
And as we know, the Catholic Church sometimes adopts pagan symbols in order to Christianize them. The Advent wreath is a circular evergreen wreath with four candles, three purple and one rose. The candles symbolize the light of Christ coming into the world. The evergreen symbolizes everlasting life and the circular shape symbolizes the completeness and eternity of God. The candle colors are derived from the traditional liturgical colors of Advent, being purple and or violet to be precise, and rose. So each candle represents a different week of Advent and they're lit respectively of that week. So in the first week, you light the first candle every night, usually during the evening mealtime. The second week, you light the first and second candles and so on. The pink candle is for the third week, rose being the liturgical colour for Gaudete Sunday. It's traditional for different family members to light the candles on the different weeks. So one week, the eldest child would light it, one week, the youngest child, and then the parents on the other weeks. That's one bad thing about being a middle child. I never got to light the candle. Actually, with the, with so many children in our family, we kind of break that tradition and we allow the younger ones to light and blow out the candles. And so the older ones have had their chance in previous years, so we give the younger ones their chance. So that way even our middle children do get a look in. Oh, that's a good idea. But before any lighting of candles, there is the initial blessing prayer done usually by the father of the home on the first Sunday of Advent, and he sprinkles holy water onto the wreath during this ceremony. Then there are prayers that accompany each night of lighting. So, for instance, on the first night and the whole first week, the prayer is, Let us pray, stir up thy might, we beg thee, O Lord, and come so that we may escape through thy protection and be saved by thy help from the dangers that threaten us because of our sins, who livest and reignest forever and ever, and then all respond, Amen. The following week's prayers continue in this theme of calling upon the Lord to stir up our hearts and prepare us in an appropriate way, thus be made worthy for his coming. Each week's prayers are taken from the collect of the masses of the four Sundays in Advent. You can buy wreaths either from plastic, kind of like the fake Christmas trees, or there are also ceramic or porcelain type ones, which is what I have at home. Ours has built-in candle holders, which is really handy. However, Wreaths can easily be made at home using any sort of branches and just putting candle holders in. You can buy the special coloured Advent candles from many different religious supply stores or bookstores, mass centres, or you can even get them online. Originally, the wreaths were hung from the ceiling like a candle chandelier, and some people still do this, but most people make them their dining table centrepiece. In a pinch, if you've left buying your one pink and three purple candles too late or they're a bit expensive for you, you can just use four budget white candles and tie a pink-coloured bow on one for the third week to distinguish it from the other ones. Yeah, we've done that some years. Um, we initially had a tabletop advent wreath, as you mentioned, but now we have our set up on a tall wrought iron candelabra that stands on the floor. And then when Christmas comes, we remove the purple satin bows and the Advent candles, and we turn it into a Christmas wreath, and we put like gold, silver, and, and or red candles, and various Christmas ornaments on it. So, anyway, moving on, what else have you got, Camille? Well, a great way to prepare for the Christmas season is, of course, the Christmas baking. There are many traditional recipes, family recipes passed down through the generations, and some new traditions, such as the Arthur Caramel Slice, which has become somewhat of an Aussie tradition, I hear. <laughs> That's true. Indeed, it seems to have done so. And for those of our listeners who don't know, Arthur is our family name, mine anyway. We really like the good old Aussie caramel slice and we wanted to add it to our Christmas baking repertoire. So I figured I'd better assign some religious <laughs> symbolism to it. So here's what we came up with. The, the base cookie style layer represents the manger. The thick caramel filling, which is the best and most important part, of course, represents baby Jesus in the manger. And the thin chocolate top layer represents the roof of the stable. I'm guessing we really should add a candy star on each piece once we've actually cut them into squares to represent the Star of Bethlehem, but I think that might be a bit too fiddly. Maybe this year we'll give it a try. So what Christmas baking does your family do these days, Camille? Well, some of the recipes we make in my family are the traditional sugar cookies, which we then cut out in all different Christmassy shapes and decorate with coloured icing such as red, green and yellow, adding various candy toppings. For example, we make Christmas tree-shaped ones and then stick on these little candy metallic balls that look like Christmas tree baubles, and then we make stars and stockings and a few other kinds. We also make some called thumbprint cookies, which are sort of like a jam drop, but the biscuit part is rolled in chopped walnuts and then it's filled with raspberry jam. 
I'm not sure if it has any religious significance, but it's just always been a tradition that my family has kept. We also make a Mexican recipe that my grandma used to make called biscochitos. They're a small, very delicate aniseed-flavoured biscuit that just melts in your mouth. Oh, yes, they are delicious. And for our American listeners, biscuit here means cookie, whereas what you would call biscuits, we here would call scones, and that is what you would use in debutant teas, that being scones with jam and cream. Or, as Americans would say, jelly instead of jam. Yet when we call jelly, Americans would call jello. So are you confused there? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we've always called those thumbprint walnut jam cookies gollywog's eyes. But I think that is probably now considered politically incorrect, like the uh, Ina Blyton references to gollywogs having to be edited out of her stories. So moving on, do your family still make almond crescents and florentines? Uh, we still make florentines. Yeah, they're my mum's favourite ones. They're the fruit and nut-based cookie with glazed cherries in them and the dark chocolate on the base. They're so good. They never last very long, though. They're pretty much all gone by Christmas afternoon. <laughs> Probably the most well-known Christmas recipe that we make are the fruit mince pies, which, of course, have religious significance. The pastry case traditionally being made in the shape of a manger. I've also heard that all the different spices in the fruit mints are to represent and remind us of the gifts given to the Christ child at his birth which is pretty interesting. Also, uh, the humble gingerbread man also has religious significance. As the gingerbread man does not create itself, but is created, it reminds us of God's creation of Adam and Eve and of each of us. Oh, all this talk about Christmas baking is making me hungry. (laughs) Actually, we also make fruit mince pies in bulk, of course, given we have 12 mouths in our immediate family alone. And we also host visitors like crazy over the Christmas season. But I confess that I have a weakness for the English Mr. Kipling's brand fruit mince pies, and I always make sure to get a little stash of them too. And if anyone is interested in any of these recipes that we have mentioned, feel free to email us for them. Oh, my goodness, Camille, we must sound like total foodies. (laughs) Not to mention that this is exactly health food, you know, naughty, naughty. What would your naturopathy teachers be saying about this? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, moving away from food then and back into the religious aspects of Advent, here's the prayer that starts on the Feast of St. Andrew, hence it is often called the St. Andrew's Prayer, or some call this the Hail and Blessed Prayer. This St. Andrew's Advent Prayer is a short prayer that is piously believed by Catholics to grant prayer requests if recited 15 times a day from St. Andrew's Feast, which is November 30th, to December 24th. It's not in the Recolta, but it's still a great prayer to make for a wonderful Advent tradition in one's family to keep their minds focused on the season. The prayer goes as follows. Hail and blessed be the hour and the moment in which the Son of God was born of the most pure Virgin Mary at midnight in Bethlehem in piercing cold. In that hour vouchsafe, O my God, to hear my prayer and grant my desires by the merits of our Saviour Jesus Christ and of his blessed Mother. Amen. Oh, that's a beautiful prayer, and I can attest to how powerful it is too due to many petitions being granted over the years from that prayer. And I'll mention for those who might find it difficult to get their family to incorporate all 15 in, what we often do is we just say three after each decade of the rosary, and mm. there you get your 15, and, it's and you know, you've covered them all and you're not losing count. So before you continue, Camille, I'll just jump in here with the popular Advent tradition that concentrates on the penance aspect of this liturgical season, which, of course, is the most important aspect. Now, we've been doing this since my eldest child was about six years of age. He's now 22, so he doesn't participate anymore. I'm sure he's dying to, but we just don't let him. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm just kidding. Yet our children aged between about 12 and five years do this one, and it's called the Sacrifice Manger. Now, each young child who is old enough to understand in some way the concept of making sacrifices is given their own manger, which they are allowed to place one strand of hay or straw in for each sacrifice they make during Advent. Now, what they are told is that just as each piece of extra hay will make baby Jesus' manger more comfortable and warm for him when he is born on Christmas Day, each sacrifice they make is preparing their hearts to be a more comfortable and warm place for baby Jesus when he is born into their hearts once again when Christmas Day arrives. Also, they are told that the sacrifices they make now due to God's timelessness, were known to baby Jesus on that first Christmas day and thus mitigated the bitter cold and discomfort he endured in the manger that first Christmas night. Now, these concepts really appeal to young children and they vie all Advent for the fullest crib and are eager to make little sacrifices every day. Now, these mangers can be as basic or as fancy as you want and making them can be a fun and useful art and craft project for the children. 
Now, we usually just make ours out of cardboard and cover them in brown paper. Then each child can add a simple religious decoration, such as a holy sticker, to individualise them a bit. Sometimes they choose to write their names on them too. As Advent progresses, their mangers should be filling up, and ideally by Christmas Eve they are chock full, and the children then wake up on Christmas morning, and on the way to checking their stockings, they find that baby Jesus is comfortable in their hay-packed mangers. Now, they kneel down and say a short, well, the baby Jesus isn't there before, he's empty, and then it's miraculously appears there the next morning. <laughs> so they kneel down and say a short prayer to the newborn saviour and then they delight for the rest of the Christmas season each time they look at their little mangers and see how much hay they've collected and see the little image of our Lord comfortably reposing in the manger that their sacrifices build. Now, I used to make my own cardboard baby Jesus dolls to put in their cribs, but in more recent years I've found some ready-made lovely little cardboard images for this purpose and in a pinch, you could just cut out a nice little image of baby Jesus from a, a Christmas card you received some previous year and you can place that in their child's manger. Now, I will mention that you might find some hilarious funny business if your children are the competitive types, as some of mine are. For example, one year I noticed that two of my sons, I'm going to dob them in actually, Jude and Samuel, both had unusually full cribs only a few days into Advent, which was unlike their sister's mangers that had only a few strands for each day. And I hadn't noticed any extraordinary sacrifices on their parts, so I questioned them about this. And Samuel replied, I made a sacrifice by placing my piece of hay in Jude's crib instead of mine, the one he had earned. And in response to that, Jude made a sacrifice of placing hay in my crib. So I made another sacrifice by placing hay in Jude's crib. Then he made a sacrifice of placing his in my crib. <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, the way the child the child's mind works. So who can who can get it, who can grasp this? Anyway, I had to explain to them that although I said that denying themselves their own will does count as a sacrifice, that the deal they had cut with each other does not count. So their cribs were emptied accordingly. Quick smart. And another year, um, one of my competitive daughters she confesses to me years later, of course, but she said that she noticed that it was getting close to Christmas. And her manger was quite empty, so she feared that St. Nicholas wouldn't put baby Jesus in her manger on Christmas morning. So she was trying to think of ways to make extra sacrifices in a hurry. And her bright idea was to go outside and purposely hurt herself by walking into a tree or something. And then because she didn't cry nor complain, she would count it as a sacrifice. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. (laughs) It's crazy. It's so funny to hear what children would do to get their sacrifices up. It's great that they're all so keen and involved, though, from such a young age. I guess it's really important to instill the concept of penance and sacrificing to children as young as possible. In my family, we all started out with the typical giving up all sweets and treats and television for for Advent. But obviously now, as I've gotten older, there are many other sorts of sacrifices to make. Some good ones for the older people are things like giving up alcohol, entertainment, such as music, concerts, movies... Some people even give up using the internet, which would be hard for lots of people in this day and age, I imagine. You could also do a bit of fasting, although it's not required for Advent, it's very much in the spirit of the penitential season. Another well-known custom is that of practising Christmas carols in preparation for Christmas, such as singing and playing instruments, but it should be made clear that Advent is not the appropriate season for listening to Christmas carols merely for enjoyment. We should, for the most part, be saving that for the Christmas season itself if we want to conform to the mind of the church. Instead, Advent hymns are the way to go for Advent, so O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is probably the most popular. A nice tradition that my family has kept for many years is singing Christmas carols. We go around to aged care homes and sing for the elderly. We used to do this in the week before Christmas, but now we usually go just after Christmas, so it's not in Advent, and it's also nice for the elderly people to have their Christmas season extended for some of the 12 days after Christmas, as it should be. Oh, that's really good. And I expect the elderly in such homes are cheered considerably by this act of charity on your behalf. Um, Such a custom is definitely worthwhile, if one can manage it, that is, with young children and their schedules. Um, Another Advent custom, probably my favourite, is that of praying the O Antiphons and also making an O Antiphon house, which is also called an Advent house for the children. Camille, you best explain what the O O Antiphons are first. Sure, Teresa. I'll quote portions from Fish Eaters' website as their explanation is very good. The seven O antiphons, also called the greater antiphons or major antiphons, 
are prayers that come from the breviary's vespers during the octave before Christmas Eve, a time which is called the Golden Nights. Each antiphon begins with O and addresses Jesus with a unique title which comes from the prophecies of Isaiah and Micchaeus, and whose initials, when read backwards, form an acrostic for the Latin Erocras, which means Tomorrow I Come. Those titles for Christ are Sapientia, Adonai, Radix Jesse, Clavis David, Oriens, Rex Gentium, and Emmanuel. To pray the O antiphons as they are prayed in the Divine Office, begin with the antiphon, then pray the Magnificat, then repeat the antiphon. The antiphons in English are as follows. December 17th. O wisdom that comest out of the mouth of the Most High, that reaches from one end to another, and orderest all things mightily and sweetly, come to teach us the way of prudence. December 18th. O Adonai and ruler of the house of Israel, who didst appear unto Moses in the burning bush and gavest him the law in Sinai, come to redeem us with an outstretched arm. December 19th. O root of Jesse, that which standest for an ensign of the people, at whom the kings shall shut their mouths, whom the Gentiles shall seek, come to deliver us, do not tarry. December 20th. O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Come to liberate the prisoner from the prison, and them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. December 21st. O O dayspring, brightness of the everlasting light, son of justice, come to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. December 22nd. O king of the Gentiles, yea, and desire thereof, O cornerstone that makest of two one, come to save man, whom thou hast made out of the dust of the earth. December 23. O Emmanuel, our King and our lawgiver, longing of the Gentiles, yea, and salvation thereof, come to save us, O Lord our God. Oh, I really love those. So when I came across the idea for the O Antiphon House, I knew that it was something I definitely wanted to incorporate into our family traditions. So here's what you do if you're interested in making an O antiphon house. You just get a large piece of thin cardboard. Now I used a purple piece in the most recent one I made. These advent houses last quite a few years if you carefully pack them away when finished with them. But being cardboard and being handled, they don't last forever. Anyway, you have to cut seven little doors into the cardstock, one for each day of the O antiphons. And behind the door, you place a piece of tracing paper with the symbol of that particular O antiphon drawn onto it. So, for example, for O Clavis, David, which is key of David, you could draw a key. And for O Orions, you would draw a rising sun, etc. So, associated with each door should be the matching antiphon written out, or you can type it up and cut it out and stick it on. The Advent house is then placed on a window, now preferably in the room where the family congregate or dine so they can be around it. Now, each day of the O antiphons, when the family are gathered for breakfast is a good time. The designated child of the family would read the prayer for the day and then get to open the door to reveal the appropriate image. And with the sun shining through the window and through the tracing paper, it makes for a really lovely effect. And also on these same days, our family will sing the verse of O Come Emmanuel that matches the day. You might have recognised when Camille read through each of those antiphons that each verse of the, um, the Advent hymn or Carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, corresponds to each of those antiphons. So we usually would do that right after we've done the Advent wreath ceremony, yet before we start eating dinner. Now, each day we add a verse to match the antiphon that day. So by the time the 23rd of December comes, we're singing the whole hymn. And then on Christmas Eve, we would sing the entire hymn again. Now, having some cheeky boys in our family, this usually doesn't come off without one or two snickers being made at either their parents or their siblings' not-quite-professional choral singing. Now, Camille, have you any other Advent customs to share with our listeners? Yes. Well, some of you may have heard of the Jesse tree. It's a custom that correlates the decorating of the Christmas tree to the events leading up to Jesus' birth. The Jesse tree got its name from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot shall come out of the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. This, of course, is relating to Jesse, the father of King David, and the branch is, of course, our Lord. The first Jesse trees were symbolised in stained glass windows in great medieval cathedrals in Europe, 
but have since been adopted by Christians in preparation for Christmas. The tradition with the Jesse tree is to adorn the tree with ornaments or pictures depicting the biblical events leading up to the birth of Jesus. This connects the Old Testament stories about the faithfulness of God to the Advent season and the birth of our Saviour. Each day of Advent should use a different symbol with a story attached to it. For instance, in the first week of Advent, the symbol for the first day could be an apple to represent Adam and Eve and the fall. The next day, it could be either a rainbow or an ark to represent the story of Noah and so on. There should be a different symbol for each day of the four weeks of Advent. It's also a really good idea to read the verse or story relating to the event of the day, especially for the children, so that they understand the significance of each symbol. And also, it's just a great opportunity to brush up on your Bible stories. It's very easy to make your own Jesse tree. You can either just stick a big branch in a pot or make a cardboard cutout of a tree and stick it on the wall. Then you can draw or print out pictures of the different symbols, sticking them onto a piece of cardboard and put a bit of ribbon through the top so that you can hang it on the tree. It's a nice tradition for the kids to get involved in. Yes, we do the Jesse tree too. We're kind of a let's do it all family. So if there's a good Catholic custom that isn't a major effort nor expense to do, yet fosters the real meaning of Advent in the home and deeper piety in our family, then I'm all for it. I even schedule our homeschooling to ensure that the children have completed their year's work before the start of Advent. So we can all spend Advent focusing on the liturgical prayers, which we go through with the Don Geringer. And there's actually an entry for each day of Advent, as well as there's an entry for the, the saints feasts as well. So you get a double entry on most days and also to incorporate all these wonderful customs and we do plenty of baking and we really do our best to properly prepare for Christmas and Camille's provided plenty of fabulous ideas to enliven the Advent spirit in any home and what great preparation this would be for all of us leading up to the joyful season of Christmas. Before moving on to the Christmas season itself we would like to remind you that you are listening to the Catholic Home on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Teresa, and I'm joined by Camille, and today we've been discussing various Catholic Advent customs. We want to remind you that the Catholic Home is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Now, what wonderful customs can you share with us to help bring the 40-day Christmas season alive in our homes in a meaningful Catholic way to combat the secularization and rank materialism that surrounds us all today in connection with this holy season of Christmas? Well, Teresa, one great way to ensure the materialistic side of Christmas doesn't take over in the home is to set up a Christmas crib, also known as a nativity set, and make it the primary focus for the family's attention and prayers during the entire Christmas season. We shouldn't just set it up and forget about it after Christmas Day itself. Given this portrays perhaps in the best visual way the true meaning of Christmas, it should be the centrepiece of our home devotions over the whole season. Some families include their nativity set into their continuing Christmas season customs by moving the three wise men each day to gradually arrive at the stable on the Feast of the Epiphany. We're very fortunate that so many beautiful sets are readily available to buy. And for those who can't afford a set with statuettes, they can easily be made from cardboard, from scratch, or from ready-made patterns. There's also a beautiful blessing of a crib provided in Mary Reed Newland's book, The Year and Our Children. It's quite long, so I won't read it out now. The blessing of the crib could be done right after the lighting of candles to symbolise the coming of Christ, who is the light of the world, where midnight of Christmas strikes. Or if assisting at midnight mass, you can do those things when you get back home. Also, once Christmas Day itself has arrived is when we should first turn on the Christmas tree lights no sooner, or else it totally loses its religious symbolic significance. There is also a lovely blessing of a tree ceremony in that same book, which is also too long to read out now, but well worth doing. You'll need holy water to sprinkle on the crib and the tree for the blessing ceremonies. Camille, have you noticed that most nativity sets available for purchase nowadays only have one shepherd? And when the scripture account clearly says shepherds, as in plural, came. So consequently, I made sure to obtain some extra shepherd figurines in an appropriate size to add to my nativity set. So ours has shepherds. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, a lot of them don't have it now. Ours is, the one that we have at home is quite an old one. So I'm pretty sure we have more than one shepherd. So after midnight on Christmas morning, some families will also sing a Christmas carol or two in front of the manger 
where the baby Jesus image is now present after they have done the ritual lighting of candles, inaugural switching on of the Christmas tree lights and crib blessing. Appropriate ones include O Come All Ye Faithful, Silent Night and Angels We Have Heard on High. Speaking of Christmas carols, there's an Australian custom called Carols by Candlelight, which traditionally takes place outdoors. Due to Christmas being in summer in Australia, the weather is conducive as a rule to large groups gathering to sing Christmas carols by candlelight in a public park. So in most towns and cities, there will be a number of places holding carols by candlelight. Unfortunately, those organised by secular community groups generally aren't an option anymore because the program is usually loaded with stupid modern songs that really have nothing to do with Christmas and sometimes even crude jokes and comments are made. However, there is really nothing stopping small groups of Catholics from using a local park area for this purpose or simply gathering in their backyard with candles and printed lyric sheets provided for each participant. The children especially love this. Oh, yeah, they sure do. It isn't the thing here in Australia for small groups of choristers to go from home to home singing carols, as one might see in a movie set in Old England. At least I've never seen that, but it would be nice to see the establishment of such a custom here. Obviously, that would require that the fast pace that has become the norm around Christmas time would have to slow down enough for families to actually all be home in the evening together to be able to have the time to receive and appreciate such were sailors and share their selection of Christmas baking and eggnog with them in return. On the subject of carols, since my husband Damien plays the piano and most of our children play it too, the Christmas season here isn't complete without the carol sing-alongs around the piano. Now, the most famous, or shall I say infamous, sing-along of the season occurs on either Christmas or Boxing Day, being the day after Christmas, for those who might not know that. And on this day, some very special extended family members and close friends come over, always bearing gifts, goodwill, and a fabulous homemade plum pudding to be served warm with brandy custard. Mm. Invariably, we spend quite some hours that day with Damien and the children playing the piano whilst they sing various carols as a crowded room of festive Catholics gather together to celebrate the birth of our Lord, joyfully sing along with them, or at least we try. Now, the infamous part really comes into play when Damien, along with all the men standing around the piano, do their rendition of the 12 days of Christmas. I'll just leave it with saying that it's a real feature and it's always a much looked forward to event and it's definitely a highlight of Christmas tide in this <laughs> household. Yeah, that carol is always a highlight in our house as well, although I can't imagine ours being anywhere near as entertaining as when Damien does it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Although the carol itself can sound quite nonsensical, it's actually extremely religiously significant. It was written in the 16th century by English Jesuits. Now, remember, this was a time when Catholicism was being persecuted by Henry VIII and his Protestantism and was not able to be openly practised. So this song was written as a catechism for children to learn and remember important doctrines of the faith without being detected by their persecutors. First off, the 12 days represents the days from Christmas Day to the Epiphany. In the carol, when it says, my true love, it is referring to God the Father and by gave to me, it means gave to each of us, the individual baptised souls. On the first day, the partridge represents Jesus and the pear tree his cross. On the second day, the two turtle doves represent the two natures of Jesus, human and divine, and it also represents the two testaments, the old and the new. The third day, the French hens, is representative of the three persons of the Holy Trinity, as well as the three gifts from the wise men to Jesus, gold, frankincense and myrrh, and also the three theological virtues, faith, hope and charity. The fourth day, the four calling birds, are the four Gospels. The fifth day, with the five golden rings, is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which is generally regarded as the most sacred and important part of the Old Testament. The sixth day, the six geese laying, are the six days of creation. On day seven, with the seven swans are swimming, they are the seven sacraments and also the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost, which are wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety and fear of the Lord. The eighth day, with the eight maids are milking, it represents the eight beatitudes. And on the ninth day, the nine ladies dancing represent the nine choirs of angels, which are angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, thrones, choirs, dominions, principalities and powers. The tenth day, the ten lords are leaping, is of course the Ten Commandments. The eleventh day, the eleven pipers piping, 
are the 11 apostles who remained faithful after the treachery of Judas. And last but not least, the 12th day, the 12 drummers drumming, are the 12 basic articles or beliefs in the Apostles' Creed. So there you go, the 12 days of Christmas, a cryptic catechism from the 16th century. That's so interesting. Similarly, in the 18th century, a little later in this persecution, the candy cane was invented by an English candy maker. He wanted to commemorate Christmas, but of course had to go about it discreetly. So he came up with a candy that was shaped like a shepherd's crook, and then when turned upside down, it was also the first letter of the holy name of Jesus. Colour-wise, it's a white candy that represents purity, with three small red stripes for the Holy Trinity and one large red stripe for Christ's blood that was shed. Then there is the custom of Catholic blessing of the main meal and drinks on Christmas Day and rounds of making toasts. One toast that invariably comes up at our Christmas meals is Hilary Belloc's quite well-known one. It goes, wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's always laughter and good red wine. At least I've always found it so. Benedict Carmen's Domino. And that's a classic. And another favourite toast here is, may your glass be ever full, may the roof over your head be always strong, and may you be in heaven half an hour before the devil knows you're dead. (laughs) That's so good. We also happened to come across this Polish Christmas traditional website, and since it is so precious, we decided to share it. In Poland, the traditional Christmas feast occurs on Christmas Eve, or Wigilia a day that holds equal importance with Christmas Day. Before the table is set, straw or hay is placed under a white tablecloth. An extra place is set for an unexpected visitor, as a reminder that the Holy Family was turned away from inns in Bethlehem and that those seeking shelter are welcome on this special night. Typically, people watch for the first star to appear in the night sky before sitting down to eat. The breaking of symbolic wafers precedes the meal and everyone shares pieces of the broken wafers. It is on this day that the Christmas tree is decorated. The Polish Christmas tree can be decorated with shapes cut from gingerbread, coloured wafers, cookies, fruit, candy, straw ornaments, decorations made from eggshells or commercially produced ornaments. And on Christmas Day, Poles will eat a large meal, sometimes with a goose as the centrepiece. Fascinating custom. Actually, there are so many fascinating customs from various Catholic countries. And our family have even started our own customs that may last for generations, who knows. And one example is what my now late father did for many years as we, his children, were growing up. And even after we were all grown up and many of us married and parents ourselves, and that was to organise a Christmas quiz. Now, it started off as just for us children to all participate in on Christmas Day itself. Then over the years, it spread to him also faxing it to some of his priest friends overseas so they could also enjoy having a try answering the questions. They're actually terrific quizzes, and though challenging, they were very educational. Now, these started off before the days of the internet, so it wasn't like my dad could just jump online to search for the information for the questions to make this quiz. And likewise, we weren't allowed to access books or any other resources, but we had to answer on our own knowledge or perhaps guesswork. Now, sometimes we would be paired up, which always helped alleviate the embarrassment of getting a lower score. (laughs) Now, I happen to have saved one of my dad's old Christmas quizzes and I will just read out just some of the questions, not all of them, and here's an example of the questions we might get. So this one is, in the opening words of the carol, God rest ye merry gentlemen, after which words should a comma be placed and explain why the comma should be placed there. Another question is, what is the meaning of the Hebrew word Bethlehem? Another one goes, until this century, and remember this quiz was given in the 20th century, the fourth and fifth stanzas of Silent Night had never been translated into English from the German. Who was the first translator of these final stanzas? And one last question I'll give as an example. Name the saint who has the honour of having her feast day celebrated on Christmas Day. And this saint's name appears A, in the Litany of the Saints, B, in the canon of the Mass, C, in neither, and D, in both. As for the answers, well, I'll leave it with our listeners to see if you know or if you can find out the answers. Anyway, this is one tradition that I've carried into the next generation, but I think my questions aren't anywhere near as challenging as my dad's were for me way back in the day, though my children may disagree. No, that's great. I bet they all love doing that. 
My older sister, Veronica, has actually carried on the Christmas quiz tradition for us over in Perth as well, which is always good fun. But yeah, I don't think her questions are anywhere near as difficult as the old ones. Now, once Christmas Day itself is over, we have a whole host of feast days to follow. Some come with their own unique customs. For example, some of you may have heard of St. John's Wine, which is basically mulled wine that has been specially blessed in honour of St. John, who drank poisoned wine but was spared any ill effects given he first blessed it. Consequently, it's customary to bless wine on the feast of St. John the Evangelist, December 27th, and the Church provides the form of the blessing in her liturgy as follows. Bless and consecrate, O Lord God, this vessel of wine through the merits of St. John, Apostle and Evangelist. Bestow benediction and protection upon all who drink of this cup. For as the blessed John partook of the poison potion without any hurt, so may all who on this day drink of the blessed wine of the, to the honour of St. John be freed by him from poisoning and similar harmful things. And as they offer themselves soul and body to thee, O Lord, give them absolution and pardon. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And recipes for this wine are easy to find in books or online. Now for the indulgence junkies out there, on New Year's Eve, you're in for a treat. I'll read from the Recolta item number 684. Those who on the last day of the year assist at the singing of the Te Deum Laudamus in a church, public or semi-public oratory in order to give thanks to God for the blessings received from him during the whole year are granted an indulgence of 10 years and a plenary indulgence with the addition of confession and Holy Communion and prayer for the intentions of the Holy Father. I should add here that there doesn't need to be a Pope at the time to get the indulgence as the phrase intentions of the Holy Father simply refers to a specific list of intentions, which I won't go into now. But wait, there's more. Item 685 of the Recolta states, the faithful who devoutly assist at the religious service to return thanks to the Most Holy Trinity for blessings received and to implore God's help held publicly during the last half hour of the old year and the first half hour of the new year and pray for the intentions of the Sovereign Pontiff are granted an indulgence of 10 years and a plenary indulgence with the addition of confession and communion. If they perform this pious exercise privately, for some time at least, immediately before and after midnight, they may gain an indulgence of seven years and a plenary on the usual conditions, but where such a public service is held, this indulgence can only be gained by those who are lawfully prevented from assisting at the public service. Well, that's one way to prevent too much rioters partying and drinking to ring in the new year. (laughs) Well, we do have some drinking and some pious partying to be done, so here's something for the guys. A blessing for beer on New Year's Day. As you sprinkle holy water, pray... Bless, O Lord, this created thing, beer, which by thy power has been made from the kernels of grain. May it be a healthful beverage for men and grant by invoking thy holy name all who drink thereof may find it a help for the body and the protection for the soul. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I'm sure many chaps will be pleased about a blessing that will make their ale healthful and protect their soul. So we've been very busy celebrating the first week or so of the Christmas season and now we're into January. So what comes next? On the eve of the Epiphany, January 5th, is what is called Twelfth Night. So having a Twelfth Night party is a great way to celebrate. In anticipation of the Feast of the Epiphany, three people can dress up as the three wise men, Gaspar, Melchior and Balthazar, and a great song to sing is the carol We Three Kings of Orient Are. Bearing gifts, we travel so far. Sorry. <laughs> a traditional drink you can serve at your 12th night party is called lamb's wool, and it's basically a warm spiced apple drink like mulled cider. It's actually quite similar to the St. John's wine. Traditionally, in many Catholic homes, it was not on Christmas Day that they would give their gifts, but instead on the Epiphany, also known as Little Christmas, in honour of the gifts given to Jesus by the three wise men upon their arrival at the stable. There's also a traditional cake called... Galette de Roi, or Cake of the Kings, which is a French almond pastry cake. Also, it is a custom to make a crown cake for the Feast of the Epiphany using a ring-shaped baking tin and decorating it with uh, sparkly sprinkles or candy to look like a jeweled crown. Three small trinkets can then be put into the batter before baking, and whoever gets a trinket in their piece of cake gets to be one of the kings for the day. In my family, we give the majority of our gifts on Christmas Day, but my mum always saves one present for us for Little Christmas. 
We also celebrate the Epiphany by doing the blessing of the home with the Epiphany water and blessed chalk. Either a priest or the father of the home can do the blessing. So upon entering the house, the priest or the father says, peace be to this house, and then all who are present respond with, and to all who dwell herein. The father then proceeds with, from the east came the Magi to Bethlehem to adore the Lord, and opening their treasures, they offered precious gifts, gold for the great king, incense for the true God, and myrrh in symbol of his burial. Then the Magnificat is recited as the Epiphany water is sprinkled in the room and then repeated for each room of the house. Then using the blessed chalk, the father writes on the doorway of the front door of the house. Uh, He'll write 20 plus G plus M plus B plus 15 or end in whatever the year is. So the 20 is for the millennium and century. G, M and B stand for the first names of the three wise men and 15 is for the decade and the year. This, of course, will change to 16 for next year. It's then customary to write this on all doorways leading into or out of the house. So we write it on both the front and back doors. And we also have a door leading from our garage into the house, as well as doors on our balcony. I think the plus sign is supposed to be a cross, isn't it? Yeah, when you put the plus, so. that's a little yeah. cross in there. So Camille, that's fantastic. Our listeners now have plenty of wonderful ideas for Catholicizing their Christmas season with all those great traditions. And as we close out this episode, we have covered many wonderful and inspiring Catholic customs to really get our families into the true Advent and Christmas spirit. And I want to thank you, Camille, for your time and being with us on this episode. The Christmas season ends on the Feast of the Purification on February 2nd, and usually Lent follows close on its heels. So stay tuned for the next installment of Catholic Customs for February onward. For now, though, is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode? Well, I think the main thing for Catholics new to all this sort of thing is to just start somewhere. Maybe for this Advent and Christmas, just choose one or two customs that appeal to you and then in subsequent years, you can add more. You should find that your families will definitely benefit from incorporating some of these edifying Catholic customs into your homes. Yeah, for sure. I I definitely think so. Well, once again, Camille, thank you for your time and we will talk to you again next month as we continue this series. God bless you. If you have any questions for Camille or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at catholichome at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to Camille. And we would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy and guests who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Teresa. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.